Hi, good morning everyone. We're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12 to 36. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas? will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. 
I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Thank you very much. Well then, the uh, picture there that you can see on the screen is uh, one of the uh, most viewed images of the last few months. This is the moment, of course, when the then president of the Spanish Football Association, Luis Rubiales, uh, forcibly kissed one of the Spanish players on the lips after their victory in the Women's uh, Soccer World Cup. Uh, his actions, of course, quickly gained him a lot of negative publicity around the world, with many people calling on him to resign. And then things really uh, snowballed after that. Of course, he refused to make any kind of apology. He was accused of sexual assault in the Spanish courts. Uh, there was all sorts of uh, internal investigations in the sort of Spanish uh, Football Association as well. There was increasing pressure on him, and then he did eventually resign a few weeks later on. Now, I'm really not sure what you make of all the ins and outs of that particular story, but one thing I'm sure that we all agree on is that we all desire accountability in leadership. Uh, we all desire uh, that leaders who abuse their positions are held to account. We have high expectations of leaders. We expect their behavior to match the position which they are in, and if their behavior falls short, then, well, we expect action to be taken. And if all this is true for the world around us, uh, how much more would we expect it to be true in the church uh, where our leaders are also uh, representing God in the, the world and are meant to be caring for their people as Christ's under-shepherds? I think uh, this makes it even harder for um, those of us who are Christians when we see Christian leaders who really aren't... Uh, matching up to the calling that they have been given. Uh, you probably know what it, it's like. We benefit from somebody's teaching, maybe. We uh, read their books. We follow them on Twitter or X or whatever it's called um, these days. Um, but uh, then we hear that they've been involved in some kind of terrible scandal and have resigned or left or been kicked out, uh, leaving others to pick up the pieces. And I know that there will be those of you here for whom these things feel really personal. You're actually someone who has been harmed by bad Christian leaders. Uh, and that leaves us asking all sorts of questions. It gives us doubts. It may even uh, lead to us wanting to walk away from the Christian church or even faith in Jesus Christ himself. And so how should we respond to bad Christian leaders? Well, obviously, it's a really big question, but we do get at least... Some answers from our passage this morning, I think, in 1 Samuel. Uh, if you are here last week, then one of the things we saw then was that God really cares about the leadership of his people. And so uh, we saw that, that God raised up Samuel to be their leader. Uh, this week then, uh, we see that the angle changes a little bit uh, as we come to look at the contrast to the person of Samuel and the subject of bad leadership. Uh, we've been uh, introduced previously to the wicked sons of Eli back in chapter 1 verse 3 and uh, now we see what they are up to and God's response to it. 
So then, with uh, these things in mind, let's get into our passage this morning. And so, uh, number one, then, on your sheets, we see that here we have a message of encouragement. And here we see that God will judge the corrupt leaders of his people. Now, we may well ask, well, uh, how is that encouraging that God judges bad leaders? But uh, hopefully we will see that it is. But uh, to start off with, let's look at these two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, and uh, what they were up to. So as I uh, mentioned a few moments ago, we were introduced to them last week. But now verse 12 uh, tells us very unambiguously that Eli's sons were scoundrels. Uh, They had no regard for the Lord. Now the translation scoundrels there is actually way too weak. It sort of almost gives the impression that these guys were kind of uh, lovable rogues. Uh, But the word in the original is actually sons of Belial, Uh, which is actually really strong. It literally means sons of evil or sons of the devil, sons of the evil one. It's a word which is used uh, elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Judges, for instance, to describe those who rape and kill. So uh, these guys are really, really bad. They are evil men. And the root uh, that we are told there is that they had no regard for the Lord. It literally says that they did not know the Lord. How terrible it is when the leaders of God's people are even described as not knowing God. How awful. Uh, What were these guys doing? Well, we see that they were greedy. So the Old Testament law had made more than adequate provision for the priests to eat some of the uh, meat, which came from some of the sacrifices which were being offered to God in the tabernacle. Uh, But here we see that the behavior of these leaders was going uh, way uh, beyond that. And so we're told in verse 13 uh, that they liked hot pot. Um, While the meat for these uh, sacrifices was still boiling, they would send along their servant with with his fork, and he would dip it into the uh, pot and then take some of the meat back to the priest's uh, quarters, a sort of uh, priestly uh, lucky dip. And then uh, even before the worshippers had actually reached the place of sacrifice, uh, they would demand some of the raw meat uh, to roast themselves. Uh, So if the worshipper raised any kind of uh, objection, uh, then they would say, no, you need to hand it over to me right now. And if you don't, then uh, we will take it by force. So they were not only greedy and exploitative of God's people, but they were also intimidating and were violent as well. And then we get a uh, summary there in verse 17. Uh, We see that the main problem that was going on from God's point of view was that they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And so it's worth saying that this is meant to be really shocking for us to read. Uh, These guys were meant to be God's priests. They were meant to be representing God. They were meant to be serving him. They were meant to be offering um, sacrifices to him for the sins of the people. They were meant to be caring for the people uh, under their care, but yet instead they were abusing their position and have contempt for God. And that's meant to be really shocking for us. Um, things get even worse a little bit later on. So then in verse 22, uh, we read that they were not only taking liberties with the Lord's offerings, but they were also taking liberties with the women uh, who used to serve at the entrance to the tent of meeting as well. They were um, sleeping with the women there and engaging in sexual sin. Uh, Old Eli, well, old Eli heard about what was going on, but the implication is that he really only made a half-hearted attempt to do anything about it. So it is true that he calls what they were engaged in uh, wicked deeds, 
there in verse 23. Uh, but it, it is also true that he really only rebukes them in a very half-hearted way. He seems much more concerned with their reputation and his family's reputation than actually with really dealing with their sinful behavior. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons. Uh, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? I think the problem with Eli is he just leaves things right there. Uh, the implication is that he's a little bit like the employer who only gives a uh, verbal warning, but then does not take any action uh, when the problem persists. Uh, Eli's sons ignored him, and Eli doesn't really do anything about it at all. The implication is that he should have at least removed them, I think, from the priesthood. Um, okay, he maybe couldn't have uh, stopped them from engaging in sexual immorality, but he could have stopped them from being God's priests, and he could have preserved the reputation and holiness of God. The implication a little bit uh, later on from verse 29 is actually that Eli was benefiting personally from what his uh, sons were up to. And so he was compromised and was half-hearted and refused to take action. And so all of this brings us to God's judgment. Uh, so at the end there, verse 25, we read that his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So here we have the judgment of God. What a sobering verse. It's not saying that God is unfair and the sons of Eli couldn't have ever done anything about this, but it is saying that the sons of Eli were so evil and so wicked that they had hardened their hearts. They had hardened themselves against God, and so God had handed them over to what they had chosen. Their judgment was guaranteed. So this is really a terrible and sobering picture for us. The enemies of God's people actually turn out not to be the Canaanites, not to be the people of the uh, lands round about, not the uh, Philistines, but actually their enemies turn out to be their own leaders who were abusing and were exploiting their position. And so we see that God will judge the corrupt leaders of his people. And we need to remember that this is actually something encouraging and good news for us uh, if we're Christians. We need to remember that when we see reports of Christian leaders falling into sin or abusing others or in indulging in sexual immorality or teaching things that are wrong or uh, Christian organizations covering up the evil deeds of their leaders, we need to remember that God cares about the conduct of his leaders and he will act. God will judge the corrupt leaders of his people. Uh, we need to remember that this is very good news for those who may be victims of abuse. Um, sometimes there is no legal accountability for so-called Christian leaders who have abused others. Uh, either there's not enough evidence, maybe, or they have maybe done something which is uh, morally wrong but not legally wrong, and so it uh, seems as if they are just getting away with it. But we need to remember that ultimate justice lies in the hands of God. And God is not mocked. Um, he will make sure that justice is done. And that's meant to be encouraging for us. God cares. How are we meant to respond then when we hear stories of corrupt leaders? Well, we're definitely right to grieve. We're definitely right to be shocked. But this also reminds us that we shouldn't be too surprised. Um, there have always been corrupt leaders of God's people, even way back here um, in the old Testament. 
I suppose there's one other thing that I would need to mention, which is the kind of uh, flip side of all this for us, uh, which is that I think we also need to guard against being cynical. I think it's very easy to hear sort of all the stories of corrupt church leaders in the, the world, and we get cynical and think that it's much more widespread than it really is. I think this can be especially the, the case if we are maybe those who have experienced bad Christian leadership ourselves. Uh, it's easy to think, well, they're all on the make, or they're all on, only in it for the, the power. They just really like having uh, control over people, or there's always some hidden agenda that the uh, leaders are always um, trying to get us to buy into. And I think we need to be careful, though, not to fall into attitudes like those uh, too easily. My own experience, for instance, is that 99% of the Christian leaders I've met genuinely love God, they genuinely love Christ, and they're genuinely trying to serve their people well, often in uh, really difficult circumstances. And so, therefore, they actually need uh, our prayers and our love and encouragement. I think we need to resist the spirit of the world at the moment, which basically says that all leadership and authority is inherently bad and abusive and needs to be resisted. The Bible says that we ought to be able to trust our leaders and we ought to make their lives a joy. And I pray that uh, it, it, it is your experience uh, here at Ambassador. So then, that's the first lesson we learn from this passage, that God will judge the corrupt leaders of his people. However, we need to move on because we also see here what I've called a message of warning, uh, which is actually a much more sobering message for us. Uh, might it be that we're actually more like the leaders in the passage this morning than we sometimes realize? It's very easy for us to sort of cheer on the victims uh, when we hear that God will judge the corrupt leaders of his, his people. But uh, we don't often stop and think, well, am I actually guilty of some of the same things that they are? This is actually a cons consistent strand of, of the Bible's teaching, that we ought not to be too quick to judge somebody else uh, without doing the hard work of also examining our own hearts and our own lives. So as it says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful um, that you don't fall. I think this is always good advice when dealing with Christian leaders caught in a scandal. There can be a great temptation uh, to look at the sins which they are guilty of without also taking the time uh, to look at our own hearts and our own lives. And in uh, preparation for this morning, therefore, I just wondered if there were a couple of contact points between uh, us and potentially Eli and his sons that were uh, worth us uh, looking at. Uh, maybe looking inwards for a moment and reflecting as to whether the sins which they are guilty of are also sins which we may be guilty of and therefore need to repent of. So there's a, a couple of areas here. And I think number one is our attitude towards God. And I think we can actually see this from Eli. Uh, so we pick up the story in verse 27, where an unidentified man of God comes to speak to Eli. So this man speaks God's word to Eli. God reminds Eli of how he had chosen Eli's descendants uh, back when they were still in Egypt. God goes on to remind Eli of all the different ways he has blessed him, but yet Eli and his sons have not honored God, and so will now be cut off from the priesthood. In uh, many ways, the key verse is there in verse 30, 
where God says, therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, uh, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The bottom line is, you see, that Eli and his sons had not honored God and so would now be disdained. Uh, really, the key verse about Eli's attitude to God can be found in the previous verse, in verse 29. Uh, you may want to just uh, look at this for a uh, moment, uh, where God says to Eli, uh, why do you honor your sons more than me? Why do you honor your sons more than me? So I think this gets right to the heart of Eli's problem. Why did Eli fail to restrain his sons? Uh, why was Eli so apathetic about the corrupt uh, leadership that was present in Israel? Well, here's the answer. He honored his sons and prioritized them more than he honored and prioritized God and his holiness and his glory. As one commentator said, it was a case of my boys rather than my God. So I wonder, is this one of the, the areas possibly where we can be a, a little bit more like Eli than we often think? Uh, for those of us here this morning who are parents, um, is there a danger that we are honoring our children and prioritizing them more than we are prioritizing and honoring God? Is that a danger for you this morning? You see, this is basically saying that if we are so concerned about being liked by our children, uh, that we don't discipline them appropriately, especially when they are young, then we are open to exactly the same sort of rebuke that Eli receives here. Why do you honor your sons more than me? And of course, it's not only for those of us who are parents here either. It's very easy for many of us, I think, to look at Eli and they, oh, well, he's just weak and spineless. But how often do we do exactly the same things that he did and we fail to honor God? Uh, we let all sorts of sins go, maybe in our own lives, maybe in the lives of other people near us, and we fail to honor God, uh, even if we would say we are Christians. Are you in danger of honoring some other person or some other people more than you honor God? That's, I think, one of the challenges here from Eli. However, there's also another attitude here as well, which this passage forces us to think through, which I think is our attitude towards Christ and his cross. So you'll remember a little bit earlier on in verse 17, we saw that one of the main sins that the sons of Eli were guilty of was that they were treating the Lord's offerings, the Lord's sacrifices with contempt. They abused the sacrifices, remember, that were being brought by the worshippers, and they used them for their own ends to eat the sort of extra meat rather than the worship of God. I think one of the implications of this for the wicked sons of Eli later on is that there can be no salvation for them. As verse 25 says, if they sin against God by treating his sacrifices with contempt, then who will be left to intercede for them? They are rejecting the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle, which means that there is no way actually for them to get right with God. It's a little bit like if uh, somebody was drowning in Victoria Harbour, um, someone sees that they're in, in, in trouble, and so they uh, pass them a life belt. Uh, but yet the person who's drowning uh, keeps on just uh, pushing the life belt away. That's the image here. They continue to reject the one thing that can actually 
save them. That's what the sons of Eli were doing here. And of course, it can be exactly the same for us too. The Bible is clear that the death of Jesus Christ in our place on the cross is the only way for us to be saved. But if we consistently reject him and keep on pushing him away, then of course there can be no salvation for us. As it says in John 3 and verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see here, it's very easy for us to look at the sons of Eli and think, oh, well, I would never ever do anything like that. But the Bible says that if we aren't a Christian, then every time we refuse to believe in Jesus, we're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, We push the life belt away and reject the one thing that can actually save us. There's no other way of salvation that God has. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ uh, taking our sin and shame on the cross so that everyone who believes in him can cross from death to life. So there's a really important uh, point here for you if you aren't a Christian. What is your attitude to the death of Jesus Christ this morning? Um, Please don't uh, keep on just uh, pushing the life belt away. Uh, I think there's also an important challenge here if we're Christians uh, as well. Okay, we may well say, well, I'm kind of uh, hardly treating the death of Jesus with contempt. And of course, that uh, may well be true. But what is our attitude to the death of, of Jesus if we're Christians? Are we glorying in it? Are we thanking God for it? Are we appreciating it more and more? Or if we're honest, have we grown pretty bored of Jesus' uh, sacrifice for sins on the cross. It fails to excite us anymore. We come to church, we may sing songs about it, we may take communion occasionally, but has Jesus' death uh, lost its uh, magic for you? Well, if so, I really hope that the example here of the sons of Eli can jolt you into action. Don't ever treat lightly the one thing in the universe that saves you. Uh, the one thing that's more important than anything else in all life. As we often sing, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. We may not have treated the sacrifice of Jesus with contempt, But are we glorying in it such that it is our life, our soul hope, and our love? So anyway, hopefully you can see that a bit of uh, self-examination from a passage like this uh, can be very good and healthy for us. However, there's one uh, last point which I'd like us to look at, which I call the message of hope. And uh, here we need to get something of an overview of uh, what God is doing in this chapter as a whole. And so you probably notice that this chapter alternates, um, especially in the, in the first half, with accounts of the growth of Samuel on the one hand, with accounts of uh, the wickedness of the sons of Eli on the other. And so uh, the verse just before our chapter starts, so chapter 2, verse 11, says then El- Elkanah, Uh, which is Hannah's husband, uh, went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Then obviously we have the uh, account of the wicked sons of Eli, which we've already looked at. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 18 to 
21, uh, it says these words, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. The robe, of course, was a priestly garment. Uh, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Uh, then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Then finally, right at the end of the uh, section that we're looking at, verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. And so hopefully you can begin to see what the author is doing here. The sons of Eli and the house of Eli is heading progressively downwards. They're getting more and more evil and will eventually be judged by God. Uh, they have abused their position as priests, and so eventually their line will end. But then the author's telling us here that there is also a new development which is on the rise in Israel. The boy Samuel is basically rising quietly and unassumingly in the background. He may only be a, a boy, but yet he's growing. He goes from ministering before the Lord under Eli, there in verse 11, to wearing the linen ephod, which is a priestly garment in verse 18, to growing up in the presence of the Lord in verse 21, and then finally growing in stature and favor with the Lord and with people in verse 26. What is God doing? Well, the author's telling us that God is raising up a leader. It may be really quiet. It may look very unassuming. It may only be there in the background for those who really only have eyes to see what is going on. Uh, the main leadership of Israel may be bad and corrupt, but yet God is still at work. He's raising up Samuel, who will be a new priest for Israel, one who will worship and honor him. And so the text here constantly is drawing our eyes back to what God is doing and the leader who God is raising up. It all comes to a great climax in our passage in verse 35, where God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Of course, on one level, this is fulfilled in Samuel. But if we know anything at all about the Bible's great storyline, uh, we will know that this also points forwards to its great fulfillment in Jesus Christ, that faithful and perfect priest who would always do what was on God's heart and mind. The language of priesthood, I know, may be a little strange to us. Uh, we maybe think of Roman Catholic priests in their robes, or maybe uh, Buddhist or Hindu priests uh, in the, their temples with their offerings. But yet the main way, really, to think about Jesus as priest is to think about one who is our mediator. Uh, Jesus is the one who makes peace between us and God through the offering uh, that he himself makes uh, in just the same way in that in the Old Testament, the priest would offer their sacrifices in the tent of meeting to atone for the people's sins. So Jesus has offered himself once for all as a sacrifice to God to make payment for us. Uh, he succeeded where the sons of Eli and even eventually Samuel would uh, fail. As it says in uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 17 in the New Testament, Speaking about Jesus, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. I uh, love the story of the conversion of uh, Hudson Taylor, who went on to found one of the very first missionary um, societies to mainland China uh, way back in the 1800s. Uh, he was at home one day, he was young, he was basically bored, and so he pulled a book off his dad's uh, bookshelf and started to read. And then uh, here is the uh, rest of his uh, story uh, in his own words. He said, I was struck by the phrase, the finished work of Christ. Immediately the words, it is finished, suggested themselves to my mind. What is finished? And I at once replied, a full and perfect atonement and sacrifice for sin. The debt was paid for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he then goes on, then came a further thought. If the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid what is left for me to do. And with this came the joyful conviction as light flashed into my soul by the Holy Spirit that there was nothing in the world to be done but to fall down on one's knees and accepting this Savior and his salvation, praise him forevermore. So he was really someone who had grasped what it means to have Jesus as your priest. See, I think so often we go through our Christian lives wondering if we've done enough uh, we know we fail, we know we fall, uh, we know we've not honored God as we ought, and so we might wonder actually some days whether we're actually really a Christian at all. But yet Jesus as priest changes all that. Jesus is your perfect priest. Uh, Jesus is the one who has offered himself to God to achieve absolutely everything which is necessary for your s salvation and standing before him. Finally, completely, perfectly, and fully there's nothing left to pay. And so therefore we can glory in the freedom that we've been given in Christ, purchased by Jesus as your perfect priest. If you think about it, the sons of Eli here, they were perverse priests. Now we have Jesus as the perfect priest, the one who has made the perfect sacrifice for us. Then if we go back to our original question then, how should we respond to bad leadership in the, the church? Hopefully we have one or two more answers. Uh, there's a message here of encouragement. We know that God will judge corrupt leaders, and that is something that ought to encourage us. There's also a message here of warning. We may actually be more like those corrupt leaders than we often realize, and so we must have a posture of self-examination. And then there's also a message here of hope that God is at work and he has raised up for us a great priest in Christ. Uh, he is the perfect pr priest who has paid the price for our sins so that there's nothing that we need to do now other than accept what Jesus has done for us and bow down and worship him. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to give thanks for your word to us this morning. We do want to confess that we often have more in common with bad leaders than we realize not honoring you and uh, not fully appreciating Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Um, we thank you for raising up Jesus for us as our great high priest, uh, one who made the perfect sacrifice 
for us on the cross so that we can be those who live in your presence forever. Uh, we give thanks, Father, that you're always at work, and we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.